Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, a quarterly financial podcast hosted by Tandem President and Founder John Carew, with additional commentary provided by Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Hello and welcome to Tandem Talk 6. Good to have you back. I'm John Carew, your host. I'm joined, as usual, by the investment team, Billy Little. Say hi, Billy. Hello, everyone. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson. Hey, how's everyone doing? Three CFAs and me. So we gather quarterly to have this talk. This is an opportunity for you, the listener, to sort of eavesdrop on our conversations. Um, We hope they're entertaining and possibly even informative. We've got uh, three topics that we're going to hit today. We're going to start off with what we consider to be important things. And we're going to move on to what might be interesting things. And we're going to finish with the big things, which is a little feature we started last talk, Tandem Talk 5. And I thought that was fun. Your big things don't have to have anything to do with Tandem or the market or portfolios or anything else. It's, It's whatever you feel like talking about, guys. So with that, why don't we begin with important things, Billy? You just hit us with, I thought, one of your better observations newsletters this month, and you touched on some interesting topics. Why don't we start there with the important things that you see affecting our portfolio or the stocks we might be considering? Okay, I appreciate that, John. Um, I think the biggest thing is the S&P, the market in general, is is up pretty big this year. So far, it's up 25%, roughly, give or take a few percent year-to-date, um, and a lot of that bullish narrative that we've seen throughout the entire year has been in still, still intact. And as we come up on seasonality, where November and December typically, historically, have been good times to be in the market, it's tough to see this petering out anytime soon. But the biggest, you know, the biggest driver of the market so far has no doubt been earnings. Earnings have just absolutely crushed it this year. Last quarter, uh, we did this tandem talk in August. Um, we finished up Q2 earnings uh, at roughly 93% year over year. That's wild. Um, it's insane. Say that again. Up ninety three percent earnings, earnings year over year. Sales at that at that same time were up twenty five percent. Those are huge numbers. Yeah, that is something that's kind of crazy. How much the market is up and valuations are coming down. Yeah. How often does it happen that that earnings are up three times revenues? To be honest, I I, I do not have that right? fact. Yeah, I don't know. I do not think <laughs> it's it's it it's. That's it not happens normal. very much. I mean, it, it definitely, if I had to put, put money on it, it definitely happened coming out of the financial crisis yeah, in 2008, right. 2009. Um, because a lot of those earnings, when you're looking at sales being up 25%, earnings up 90%, all that kind of margin expansion in there, yeah. well, a lot of that is financials, banks that were writing off loans before, right. now adding reserves. So it's not. So it's kind of the flip side of what before sales might have increased marginally, but earnings plummeted. Correct. Now you have sales continuing to increase. Correct. But, it's, but it's exactly. Earnings are. It's exactly that. You know. Are normalizing. 
through COVID, through the financial crisis, earnings didn't just drop 90%, right? Or earnings probably did drop close to 90%. Sales, Sales did, did not. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's just, the, it's just the flip of that. But going forward, earnings expectations are still, still pretty good. So far through this quarter, earnings are running at roughly 30% growth, where expectations coming into the quarter were around mid-20s. So we're beating expectations. We're still growing at a healthy clip. And Q4 going forward, still looking at roughly 20% growth. It's interesting too. I mean, you've seen every single quarter has sort of gone that trend. For the past, I don't know, gosh, 10, 15 years, the trend in earnings has been they start out high at the start of the quarter and they come down throughout the quarter. And it's what you've total seen, opposite. yeah, total opposite this entire year. Uh, it's just been sort of interesting. I mean, analysts have been wrong. Uh, no offense to any analysts that are listening, but they're often wrong on their estimates, right? It's just that this time they're wrong and in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think I saw that this quarter over 80% of companies have actually beat analyst expectations, which is pretty wild. Um, and to the point of market valuations actually coming down despite the 24% or 25% increase, uh, that really goes to show how fast earnings are accelerating. They're growing, they're outpacing price well, growth. Right? Marginally, I mean, it's not like valuations are uh, becoming cheap. Right. I mean, it's just that yeah, they're we're a not little going bit. 30 PE to 15. Yeah, overnight. Right. Right. yeah, we're going from like 24 to 23. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's right. very minimal. It's just impressive given how positive the price right. action is. Market PE at the start of the year was around 24. Given the recent drawdown, now we're back at all-time highs. But at the draw, at the bottom of the drawdown in October, it was as low as twenty and a half times. So you are getting a compression in valuations. It's minimal, but yeah. valuations are coming but down. I just wouldn't want to leave. What you said, Ben. Go go ahead. But right, you don't want to leave with a strong impression that that's the case. But that's what you said. Stocks can become valuations can become compelling without. Stock Correct. prices having to Correct, fall. and I think that we saw that to a certain extent over 2014, 15, 16 during that time period where the market moved sideways for 18 months. I mean, there was a bit of an earnings recession at the start of that, but then earnings started growing coming out of that. And so you can have these periods where the market just sort of goes up less than earnings. All I was trying to say is valuations are definitely compressing, but I wouldn't want to leave somebody with the impression that valuations are compelling. No, they're right. still historically in a very stretched Right, um, stretch right. manner. Whether you're looking at sales, earnings, book value, for the cash market, flow. it is right. worth noting that for we're talking market. about for the market, exactly. not for all stocks. Exactly. Okay, so I have a couple of questions, if I may, and I'm thinking back to the last two tandem talks, and I want to, I, j- I just want to build on something that Billy and Ben both said, and Jordan expressed sort of differently. And Jordan commented that eighty something percent of companies reporting earnings so far in the S and P 500 have exceeded expectations. And that's impressive, but I want to I want to emphasize that that's not terribly unusual. It's just that in most quarters those expectations have been guided down throughout the quarter, and yet Billy and Ben, you're telling us that expectations are guiding up. Mm-hmm. So just an observation before I then ask you this question. I recall in previous downturns like um, the tech bubble bursting and then 9-11 or the financial crisis, how going into those, analysts' expectations took too long to come down, right? Mm -hmm. And then coming out of those, analyst expectations took too long to come back up. So analyst expectations have a history of 
lacking, right? Is that correct? Is that fair? So what I want to know now is what you guys think. Is that what's happening now? Analysts just haven't caught up to how terrific everything is? Or are we in some sort of little twilight zone here where nothing is as it seems? I think it's more the twilight zone. I think it's really hard for analysts to get a read through on what a company's expenses are going to be right now. Absolutely. And that's like when we talk early in the COVID days, right? We talked about there being no visibility whatsoever. Right. And companies just saying, I have no idea what next month is going to be. I'm not, I'm not putting any guidance out there. I think it's, we're still, we're not in that moment, but there's still that mentality of yeah. why would I put something out there if there's still a little bit of unknown? I mean, we had COVID rates pick back up in September and you did see GDP come, come down a little bit last quarter. There's still uncertainty out there. Right. So, so why put something out there that you don't think you have any shot at, at, at beating? Yeah. At meeting? And, it, and it's not just, to me, it's even more than just sort of analysts being unsure about, hey, what a company's expenses are going to be. I mean, look at Abbott, for example. I mean, Abbott basically wrote off their COVID assets and then COVID ramped back up with Delta and Abbott just was making a ton of money once more on all their COVID tests. So now they're making all that money again. Well, now you have the news of the Pfizer's new drug coming out and all that good stuff to where it looks like we're going to sort of I'm going to have to take yeah. that right down again. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you and I were joking about how, how many times can you write something down, right? But it's. I think things like that make it really hard to be an analyst right now. Well, then I want to ask the next question that pops into my mind. And this, this may be sort of borrowing from what is interesting rather than important. But we've talked in the past uh, around this table. Actually, this is a new table. We haven't talked around this table yeah. before. But we've talked about how margins have been expanding, but the expectation, largely due to inflation, at least that's the conversation that we've had in Tandem Talk 5, for instance, the expectation was that margins would feel pressure going forward. Yet, Jordan assures me that margins are expanding. Yeah, I was blown away whenever I read that S&P profit margins hit an all-time high recently. In the face of, you see all the headlines about rising input costs with inflation, producer prices, higher wages, SG&A expense going up across the board. And yet companies have posted record profit margins. I was blown away to see that. It's, it is interesting. I think a lot, um, a lot of people, myself included, expected to see margins start to come down. I'm not willing to throw in that towel yet to say that they <laughs> have, they will not come down. I think what has been surprising to not only analysts, investors, but companies themselves, is a lot of them are talking about, they're still talking about price pressures, input costs going up. That's not going away. And most of them see it going through next year. But what a lot of them are, have admittedly been surprised about is the, is the pricing power that these companies have had and the ability to pass on the costs, which have helped help the input costs, right? Help those margins. Um, and the fact that you still have expenses that we were very used to pre-COVID, business travel, that's still not back. You know, there's still a lot of business expenses that have not come back. Yeah, travel travel expenses are definitely still down. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, though, with the ability to price, or the ability to pass price along. Consumers are spending. I mean, consumers are spending probably even more than they should. 
And so companies have been able to price, I mean, they haven't gotten any pushback yet from the consumer. Once the consumer starts to push back a little bit on the price increases that they're seeing, I would imagine that that's when margins begin to take their hit. And real wages are now down. I mean, they're down at financial crisis levels right now because inflation is so high. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves on a topic list. We're definitely but... moving into the interesting and away from the important, but let's let's continue on this vein for just a minute because I think what you just said, Ben, is fascinating. You said people are spending more than they probably should, and I know you didn't mean that from a judgmental standpoint. You meant that <laughs> from, from an evidentiary standpoint, but I'd, I'd like to, to dig a little deeper into how we're all able to do that because I think so many people think, you know, the government is is paying people to not work and all that stuff. And I think the October jobs report sort of put that to bed. Right. It was part of it, but right. it is no more, right? That's why we had such an explosion or that was a contributing factor to the explosion in jobs for October because that was the first clean month without the extended unemployment benefits. Yet we continue to spend in amazing amounts. So why? Why can we do that? Personal savings rates are coming down. Consumers are spending through their stimulus checks that they had in their checking accounts. You've seen average checking account balances come down across the board as consumers continue to spend. Where do you even seen... find those stats? Where do you even find that? Jordan is the king of, of, of Googling interesting things. Yeah. So savings rates have come down. Have debt levels risen on the consumer's balance sheet? Are uh, we borrowing to do this? I'm not sure on that. I, after our last Tandem Talk, I do believe the consumer sentiment reading that came out was one of the poorest readings in a while. So you're starting to see, and Ben, to your point about negative real wages, you're starting to see at least some signs of pressure on the consumer with savings coming down, with real wages being negative, with the price of the pump being the price in which it is at. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some continued weakness there. I have a question. Price at the pump, it's huge. I mean, the, the increase that we're paying per gallon of gas is, is huge. But are we, are we consuming as much gas as, as we did pre-COVID? I have no idea, but are we putting the same amount of miles on our car? That I, we, that we I wouldn't think so. I don't have any data to back that up. So but. that's not bleeding us as much as you might think otherwise, right? So how big a contributing factor to our ability to spend is something like student loan? It's not forgiveness. What's what's the right deferral. word? Deferral. Deferral. Thank you. I think it's a huge, uh, huge component. I mean, it's however many billions and tens trillions or however much hundreds of billions of dollars over a trillion dollars of student loans out there and if you don't have to pay back principal and interest right now that's a huge savings it's a stimulus check in and of itself every single month that's hitting people's absolutely absolutely now that's supposed to come back in january um that'll be tough that will be tough but um i think that is a huge stimulus that's that might not be talked about a lot, although Jordan did talk about it, I think, two tandem talks ago. Yeah, I think, I think it was that was bad. my one big thing last tandem talk. Oh, it, well, yeah, okay, so it was August. I also wonder sort of how much of it is also market participation. You're seeing a much broader participation in equities and cryptocurrencies and things like that, which have really appreciated okay, nicely. Don't, don't borrow too much from our next topic. <laughs> Interesting things. 
crypto is 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 all I wasn't trying notes. to talk about crypto. <laughs> I was trying to talk about more how people are finding another source of income, and that's not going to be picked up in a jobs number. The fact that people are saving more money because they're sitting at home or whatever, and they're just putting it in. But the savings rate is down, right? In, investing it in something like crypto oh, okay. or whatever. Okay. Maybe it's not sitting in a bank account like it once would have. Understood. Instead, somebody's putting it on a call option on AMC and seeing what happens. <laughs> Boy, has has call volume exploded just because it's a cheaper way to invest? Oh, you know what? As I see that I might have just stolen someone's future thunder, let's pause, mm-hmm. let's put that topic on hold. And this is a great segue to get back from interesting things to important things that actually affect our portfolios that we manage for our clients. Ben, on a daily basis, you oversee the model, our tandem's quantitative process. What are you picking up in that? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. I think the model and a lot of the output from the model, which runs across individual names, so it's not like we get some macro read, but you can read everything at the sort of micro level and then build a macro picture, right? Generally speaking, things definitely still lean towards expensive. There are pockets that have definitely gotten cheap, and uh, that's always sort of fun to see. And so we've added a new name, Jack Henry, which was a part of that. You've seen payment processing companies sort of take take it to the chin. We've added two new names, though, haven't we? Yeah, I was going to go into some more, too. And so there's some other pockets that have sort of gotten beat up as well. Uh, Discount retailers, uh, you're starting to see them sort of struggle, which allowed us to get into Ollie's. And you've also seen it happen in cybersecurity a little bit. And we've seen some names that we like get cheaper there as well, like Qualys, Checkpoint, names like that. So these aren't names in all of our strategies. Can can we pause right there? Because I want to be clear to the listener that these aren't names necessarily added to a strategy that you, the listener, might be in. Qualys and Ollie's were added to equity and mid-cap core. And Jack Henry was added to large-cap core equity and mid-cap core. So if you're keeping score out there, I just want you to, to know which names apply to what strategy. I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt that. No, just, no, 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 you're fine. I, don't, I didn't really have that much more to add to that point other than sort of what we were talking about earlier. Things still lean towards expensive, but you've really seen a lot of companies grow into that valuation as well as earnings have rebounded so nicely. So Jordan and I were exchanging notes in preparation for this. And Jordan, you were speaking of market undercurrents. Is that sort of what Ben's talking about, where you're seeing pockets of, of extreme valuation, but, but pockets of opportunity simultaneously? Yeah, yeah, definitely so. And I think Ben was touching more on industry specific, but for more of a macro angle as well, sector specific, and even growth versus value. You've seen many rotations throughout the market for most of the year, and it's really driven by yields. With yields going higher, you see a bid to value and to things like financials and energy. And as yields have come down, you see bids to technology and some of uh, the more speculative areas of the market, if you will. Doesn't uh, it really feel like you could just look at what the 10 years doing and figure out oh, what the yeah. rest you of the market is doing? You see these rotations today. intraday. Yeah, so yeah, let's, it's all driven let's by. Expand on that. Expand on that, please, Billy. Because, for instance, today um, we had a bad uh, inflation number, right? Yesterday. And the 10-year ticked up like 10 basis points, which when you're yielding nothing, 10 basis points is a lot. So explain to the listener, when the 10-year goes up, what happens? And when the 10-year goes down, what happens? 10-year goes up, you're looking at a lot of cyclicals, financials, 
energy will typically go up. The technology names will typically underperform. Um, and then the opposite on, on the other side. But it's when I, when I mentioned that you see this intraday from 10 to 12 o'clock, you'll see technology go up and small caps might be down. And then it, it just flips and it's just the trade in reverse. You've been, you've been seeing it all year long. Yeah. Um, and it's you've been telling us that things are happening faster than they once did that a, a bear market that in 2000 lasted nearly three years <laughs> in 2020 lasted nearly three weeks right is that what this intraday stuff is or is this normal I think some of it's it's probably normal for we've kind of experienced this for a few years now this is some of this intraday rotation you know a lot of it's a lot of it is passive allocation models driving this trading so you know you're all 10 years up so they're all getting into the financials etf and the utilities et the utilities etf goes down and then yields flip at a bond auction at 12 12 30 one o'clock whenever that happens and yields go down utilities all go up together and then <laughs> and then uh yeah, that's exactly financials what go down just the other day it was bad bad auction on the 30 year that's really what that's really when the 10 year spiked was not oh yeah on the inflation number but on the bad auction which was a result of okay. the bad inflation number but when the auction was poor 10 year spiked and the triple q's in tech just fell completely out of bed and so i feel like uh john you asked if this is sort of new I feel like maybe how much yields is driving everything right now is maybe newer to this market, but it, there's always something driving. I mean, how, how long ago was it that it was the yen? All you had to do was yeah. watch the dollar yen, yeah. and you mm-hmm. would know which way to trade right then and there. Yeah, there so it's is always, always something. something the, the yield is basically a proxy for inflation in the moment, right? It, it's a proxy for the 10 year is right now. And if you disagree, please ch- please speak. Yeah, up. I mean but it's what's well, ultimately growth. it's it's a it's a nominal yield, so it's it's got an inflation component and a growth component. What you're seeing right now, um, but the upticks and downticks are inflation news sensitive right now, are they not? Not all, not all of them. Not as I much. think some of them okay. are 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 specific to or tend to move with growth. What GDP did, you know, I think what's what you've seen in the market with rate volatility and the short end going up and the long end going down so you've seen a flattening in the curve i think what you're seeing what you're seeing there and then you you're seeing what the back end the 20 and 30 years is now inverse so basically what that what that is right where is the inversion in the back end of the curve through the 20 and the 30 20 years has a higher yield than the 30 year okay so what that's, we don't see anything on the short end. Not on the short end, relative still, to anything. No, right? I mean on the really short end when There's you're a little when you're with the one month, yeah, with when the you're thirty like, day right now. Yeah, the third. Yeah, that has to do with the debt ceiling yeah, in, yeah. in a few weeks, but it's still pretty steep on the short end. But once you get to the back end, so what that what rates are essentially telling you right now is there is a fear out there that the Fed might have to be a little bit more aggressive, short term, to maybe down inflation causing some type of policy error and affecting growth in the long run yeah so let's let's bring this home to how it affects us and the way we function on on a daily basis we have no expect we're 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 not making predictions of future and then 
making investment decisions based on that. We're, we're driven by math. But what opportunities present themselves to us as yields rise, if that is our listeners' greatest concern? And what opportunities present themselves to us as yields fall? Or is that even a fair way to look at it? I think it sort of goes back into what we were talking about earlier, the way that yield can move things and how it flows back through the market. If yields are rising, high beta tends to do very well. High beta meaning more volatile stocks. More volatile stocks tend to do well. If you're in a falling rates, if rates are falling, then typically low low beta and low volatility does very well as well. So I feel like it's sort of a part of that conversation that we were just having a little bit in terms of what's driving. Yeah, we're low beta. So do we fear rising interest rates? I think that there's an there's a little additional layer of complexity right now than there was sort of more historically. Historically, that's been the relationship. Rising rates, high beta is good. But right now, I think with the complexity that inflation adds to it, it's a little bit different than perhaps that historical relationship expands. So one of the things that I was taught as a young man in this business that I brought with me to tandem was that companies that grow through any environment can grow and sustain the growth of their dividend. Billy, you and I were trading notes earlier, um, and you were emphasizing to me the importance of dividend growth, which is Tandem's mantra, right? So let's talk about that for a minute. Dividend growth is supremely important during an inflationary, or if your inflation expectations are going to rise, or you're in a rising interest rate environment. Our large cap core strategy currently has an annualized dividend growth rate of 9, 10%. So when you're comparing that to a 10 year at 1.5%, and then as I mentioned before, interest rates, the 10 year treasury, that's a nominal rate. So you've got, you've got an inflation component to that. So back out the inflation component, and now you're 1.5%, we're what, 6% inflation, I think was the most recent CPI number. You're what, 4% roughly? four and a half percent a negative real return so if you can if your income can grow through dividend growth you can have nine to ten percent income growth still back out your six percent inflation you still now have a positive three percent real return on your income as opposed to a fixed income uh, fixed income product or a, a bond that is giving you a minus four and a half percent real return today. So I think dividend growth is, is, is absolutely critical in an inflationary environment, in a, rising, in, in a rising yield environment. And if I may just sort of tag along with what you're saying, pile on in effect, it seems to me that in the short run, if, if, if yields spike today, look, dividend yield equals dividend amount divided by price, right? So if yields rise, then if, our, if today the dividend yield is constant, the price is likely to fall, right, to, right. Keep, to keep pace with that increase in yields, broadly speaking. And, and, and if we're getting too technical, I apologize, listener. But in the longer term, not in the immediate, if your dividend income is rising, then the price can actually still grow? Absolutely, and, and the dividend growth that we speak of, this, that is a, a long-term 
thing that we're, we're talking about here. In the short run, absolutely. A sharp increase in yields, we have typically always underperformed that. You know, large in the cap, moment. In, in the, the moment. moment. And it's because, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. If you pay a dividend and you have a yield and interest rates are increasing, dividend stocks sell off in that moment. You saw it during the taper tantrum of all years blend together now for me. 2018. You even saw it some in September, right? I mean, markets were down, but yields were up. Correct. And yeah. we yeah. we did not. We still outperformed in September, but we did not outperform as much as we usually did. And part of that was driven by yields. A sharp, sharp rise in yields. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I want to go back to, some, to a point that Ben made earlier, um, talking about high beta stocks relative to the the low beta portfolio that we offer to our our clients and i and ben i don't want to speak for you i'm certainly not correcting you but i think what you were saying was in the moment right right when things trade. happen when the when the switch flips from a trading perspective which yeah. we're not about here but we were we were talking things topical and interesting high beta is where the money goes quickly, like mm-hmm. Billy, how you were speaking of almost intraday. It, mm-hmm. it happens definitely, that fast. definitely talking intraday, and but whatnot. but when when yields rise, in in my mind, valuations PEs get compressed, earnings yields get compressed, or dividend yields go higher immediately by prices falling. But if you have this dividend growth component. And by the way, just just to reiterate what Billy said, our average holding grows its dividend by nearly 10% per year, then you have much less valuation compression. As interest rates went from double digits in 1980-something to zero today, PEs expanded. They expanded dramatically. We're looking at a PE on the S&P today of what? 21 and a half times. 21 and a half. <laughs> you can go back to the late 70s and early 80s and see single-digit PEs. Yeah, at the start of the right. 70s when inflation was starting to get hot and yields were on the rise out of the back end of the 60s and into the early 70s, you saw multiples compress. Right. And so you saw that relationship that you're talking about. Yeah. And then you've seen the opposite and, once yields peaked in the early 80s. And I've been around long enough to witness that. <laughs> but that is what happens. PEs compress which is to say that either earnings have to grow exponentially, and earnings don't grow exponentially in a rising interest rate, rising inflation environment for most companies. So PEs contract, not expand, as they've been doing for the last 30-plus years. And the only ways that I know of to counteract that are to have businesses that thrive in that environment. Maybe they have low or no debt, or they have long-term debt that they're not rolling over, or they pay a growing dividend, or perhaps something like investment properties that have a a rent escalator with inflation, right? Those are the assets that do well in that world. Yeah, that's that's something more often than not when I have the opportunity to speak to a client. It's something I go over when we talk about the businesses that we own, the stocks that we own, their ability to grow their dividend and the ability to grow their earnings. It doesn't matter to me what the asset is. It can be a stock, it can be a house that you rent out on Airbnb, it doesn't matter. If you are able to increase the income or the profit, in the case of companies that don't pay a dividend, 
year after year, consistently, that thing will appreciate in price too. It might not appreciate every day, month, quarter, even year, but over time, which is what we're talking about doing here. Sometimes when we do these talks, we get caught up on talking about trading and whatnot because it's fun to talk about. But we're talking about is investing in these businesses and over the long term, those businesses that, that do all of those things consistently, John, like you're saying, should appreciate in price too, regardless of whether or not we're in a rising rate environment or falling. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? So I think that's an excellent point. And so why don't you just wrap that up with reminding us of what are the two critical um, components we look for? Yeah, sure. So we look for stocks that can grow their earnings and their sales and their cash flow, really their business, regardless of what's going on in the economy, whether it be a financial crisis or, or whatever. And as a result of that, we look for companies that also, if they pay a dividend, grow that dividend consistently. And you have this really organic dividend growth. It's not like some of these companies, <laughs> AT&T, that just <laughs> use a bunch of debt to grow that dividend minimally. They're going to terminate our sales service. But it's this super organic dividend growth, right? right? Where they it's, control it's their sustainable. own destiny, right? Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it and, allows and them it, to, to change that. John, you were talking to somebody about it the other day that a couple years ago, that dividend growth rate in our portfolio was closer to 12%, right? 12, 13%. And that number has come down as the cycle has gotten longer. But our companies have the ability to fluctuate that dividend growth over time because it, they have more wiggle room than a company like AT&T, who I'm not just trying to single out AT&T, they're just a textbook example of debt and low dividend growth. And they grew that, that dividend during all of 2020 COVID. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. It, that's just what we look for. And, and I believe that this is an all weather strategy. We're not supposed to be the hot strategy at any particular part of the cycle, but we're supposed to participate in all parts of the cycle, right? That's Absolutely. that's who we are. So let's put a nice little bow on that, if we may, and um, sort of move into things interesting. I have some notes here in front of me, um, and I'm just going to throw out a couple things and, and see who feels uh, emboldened to pick up one of these. So I'd like to hear your case about, and again, these are interesting things. This has nothing to do with how we manage a portfolio. <laughs> these are things we have opinions on, but we manage portfolios. We pick equities based on math, not our opinions. So we're just, this is purely entertainment value right now, right? This is fun for us to talk about. So a couple things to throw out. I had the opportunity to meet with a group of financial advisors, Jordan, in your hometown of Myrtle Beach on Monday. And it was fun to be back with people in person. And I asked him for a show of hands. I said, who in this room thinks the market, the S&P 500, will be higher three months from now than today? And every hand in the room went up. I said, who thinks the market will be higher six months from today? And a couple hands came down. And I said, who thinks the market will be higher a year from today? And nobody knew what to do with their hand. (laughs) One hand was up, one was down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was (laughs) exactly. Um, So the first topic, I I just, this this is a buffet for you guys, okay? Bullish or bearish case 
make one or both. Before you jump into that, I'd like to also hear if somebody feels strongly about the Fed or central banks in general or inflation. The way I would probably approach that is talking about those things at the end and then building to the case sort of for the market. Go for it. And I'd probably start, if we're going to talk about the Fed, I'd probably start it with inflation because that's, that's really what's driving everything right now, right? Absolutely. And so, I mean, inflation, as we saw earlier this week, is still red hot. And I even saw a report that was talking about, I mean, the most recent print, it was up, CPI was up 6.2% year over year. And even core CPI, which strips out energy and food, which is crazy to me because that's what we spend so much of our money on. Even core CPI was up at, I think, multi-decade highs. And so inflation is running hot. But I saw somebody say that if they were still calculating CPI, Billy, which is something that you've talked about, how they calculated it. times that they've changed it. That's crazy. But if they still calculated how they calculated in the 70s, we would have inflation numbers that rivaled Carter's. So inflation is definitely out there. I think rents are up 15%. I've heard of some people that rented apartments here in Charleston and their next door neighbor's rent that they signed like three months later is up like 50%. I think you heard yeah. that from Jordan. I, I did. <laughs> that is the case. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I would say that's what's driving a lot of this and that's then feeding into the Fed. So what does the Fed do? The Fed, the Fed's in a pretty bad position. They're in a pickle, aren't they? They are. And they're tiptoeing it pretty well, I would say. Yeah, but I mean, they've they have it right now. I mean, they've expressed their their fifteen billion dollars a month that they will taper, starting what this month, right? Beginning, starting November, continuing through December. By the way, the market pretty much yawned at that. No, it did, and I think it's I I think the reason why it yawned was because they I mean they have laid it out. They as well telegraphed. It was, yeah, yeah. It, there has not been a surprise. But you, but the they, interesting thing, which Maybe this is what you're about to say is they could have to surprise. I think not only that is sort of a wild card right now. I think there's also sort of a political wild card right now, too. Following these most recent elections, I think Republicans sort of caught some people off guard. And there's people that are now starting to think that Biden will have to get rid of Powell to sort of appease the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party to sort of add some to sort of reinvigorate that part. Right. And I think that that would be more concerning to the market. The market hates any sort of a lack of continuity. I think that Powell, whether he has done well or not, it doesn't matter. Continuity is good for the market. And so I think there's sort of two layers of uncertainty. But Billy, you're exactly right that they could surprise to the upside. Or have to surprise. I think the market also yawned at that as well because they gave themselves an out. They said if the pace of job increases continue on the path they will continue to taper that if had caused the markets to rally intraday yeah when jerome powell was speaking he gave the fed essentially an out if they had to walk back and the the market if the markets fall 10 percent, we introduce qe again (laughs) right but the market is starting to price rate hikes i mean i think that the the probability of two hikes by next september is now above 50 percent. so i mean the market is starting to think that they will be hiking more quickly, which is what you were talking about. Is that what you meant, Billy, by they could surprise? Correct. Have to speed up. Have to speed up, whether it be speed up the uh, when they start to hike rates, um, or even speed up the taper. I mean, it's at $15 billion now, but like you said, they have an out. They also left their se- themselves wiggle room of saying, 
hey, we could also speed this up. Right. You know, tapering one also, hand down, one hand up. Tapering is also a form of tightening. I mean, people sort of forget that the market has not digested that all that well in sort of recent history. So the question that I have is, how are yields still at the level in which that they are at, despite 6.2% CPI and despite the Fed pulling back its bond purchases on the long end of the curve? How have yields, particularly on the long end, not gone higher? That's a really good question. I mean, the only, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head, there is a lot of money out there. There's a lot of money in pension plans and with insurance companies that they need to be invested in something. So if you can get so if you can get one and a half percent today and you there's a chance that you might we might go the way of Japan and long long rates might be zero percent, which in turn will worse or worse. So which in turn will help those bond prices. But as far as that yield that they're getting today, where they're locking it in, I mean, they're locking in one and a half percent in a world that most uh, places also, have a negative yield. I also wouldn't say though that uh, that this six point two percent CPI print has to has to just continue month after month after month after month, right? Right. So I would say that there's this interesting debate sort of going on in the marketplace right now between whether or not inflation is transitory and Two, whether or not growth will be low. I mean, one of the reasons why yields could go lower is because growth is going to be lower over the longer term. And so I think the bond market is pricing in both of those, low growth plus perhaps more persistent inflation. And you're seeing that in real yields, which, Billy, you you kind of brought those up earlier. And we were all discussing the importance of yields. But really, Billy, don't you think that what's driving the market more than yields is, is real yields? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's ultimately what you're making at the end of the day. I have a slightly different take. And, and by the way, I just want to tip my hat to Billy for for over a year ago talking about stagflation. Um, and you were just way out in front of the curve on that, which is low growth and high inflation is yeah, stagflation. You're about that in April of last year. Yeah. I, so kudos to you, Billy Little. But what I'm interested in getting your feedback on is I would... I would propose that there's no such thing anymore as fixed income. It's fixed return of principal. Why are yields this low, Jordan? Because there is a there is a portion of the investing public that requires a return of their principal above a return on their principal, right? And those people that are requiring a return on their principal are looking at equities or other things. Mm-hmm. Those that are requiring a return of their principal don't care if the German Bund or the JBY, or whatever it's called. Is it the JBY? Did I say that right? The Japanese bond. <laughs> JGBs. JGBs, thank you. Japanese government bonds, yeah. yeah. thank you. Um, produce a negative yield, that's irrelevant. They produce a still-believed-in guarantee of return of principle. I think that's the world we find ourselves in right now. But Billy, you made a point that that I, I want to get back to. You said the Fed the Fed was walking a tightrope and they were doing a pretty good job. But they the, but they run the risk of my words not yours. Surprising. And your definition of a surprise was raising rates faster or higher than the market expects. 
what happens if the inverse of that happens and we get a rate cut or a further expansion of balance sheet or whatever because PAL is replaced or a new policy takes place or other central banks just are no longer aligned with where we are. What, what, what happens in that world? Is it just more rocket fuel on the fire? That's been the expectation. It's been the expectation since the financial crisis. I think you know, the market has almost been conditioned to expect that. I mean, the market is conditioned that one day we're going to have more QE and it's going to be bigger than the last one. We started buying what? Corporate bonds during COVID and muni bonds. Yeah. Equities could be there too. <laughs> yeah. But do you really think that right now if the, if the Fed were to cut rates that the market would applaud that? Personally, no. I, I, I think, don't think so. I think that would shock the market right now. Yes. I mean, if they did that at a left field, absolutely. Shock it to do what? Does the market sell off because rates go lower? I think that the interpretation of a rate, if they surprise to the downside, which is sort of what you asked. Yeah, it is what I asked. I think that the market would be like, what, what do they know? <laughs> and it, it would, the answer to that, I would think, would be that growth is way worse than people are anticipating. Yeah. Everybody's anticipating a rate hike because of how bad inflation is becoming. It's becoming a less transitory. I think Powell's changed his definition of transitory and, a couple and times. And growth has been pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the economy has expanded for the past 18 months. Yeah. And they would be treading into unknown waters. You would be bringing rates negative. The Fed funds rate, if they were to cut, would go negative, which they have never done. That's uncharted territory. And Ben, to your point, the market hates uncertainty. Right. I agree. But maybe the we don't have to take yields to zero if we just keep expanding the balance sheet, right? So let me just throw one more thing out at you and we'll, we'll tie this up and, and, and move on. Um, so in previous times of inflation, the Fed's tool was to move rates higher. In this world that we live in right now, um, the result of inflation is potentially, although it hasn't manifested itself yet, potentially uh, profit margin contraction, right? And if you move rates higher in that world, you exacerbate that problem. Borrowing costs become excessive or exorbitant and Inflation is eating away at profits, and so corporate profits die, and you would assume that prices follow in that scenario. So is there a world in which margin compression really feels the, the brunt of increased inflation, and the Fed would lower rates to combat that? I know it's completely contrary, but... But they're walking a fine line here, they, largely they through their own making. A lot through their own making. Almost entirely, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think I, it's really hard. I think we've touched on this before. It's really hard to see a world of significantly higher rates. Um, the amount of debt that's on yeah. corporate balance sheets. Sovereign and sovereign balance, balance sheets. Sovereign yeah. balance sheets. Um, the amount of debt that's out there. 
is is through the roof. So increasing borrowing costs would just put a wet blanket on everything. Um, but to that point, how we're seeing CPI go up 6.2% on annual, annualized rate. Well, Social Security, Medicare, that's all tied to inflation. All those costs are already going up for the government. Yeah, what was the Social Security bump? Five and a half or something Largest, like Largest in a long time. A generation, for sure. So you've got that jump in payments. You cannot tie higher interest payments on top of that. It's, we're, we're in a crazy situation. Yeah, but there's a new school of thought that I'll be honest, I do not subscribe to, that doesn't think that any of that matters. I mean, that's the whole push that MMT is making, right? Modern this monetary theory. Is that, is that the sovereign debt level is, is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And so there's a whole school of thought right now that is forming policy in this country that the debt is irrelevant. The government can, can issue whatever debt they want. And I just think it's it's feeding and, part of the and crazy world. And that's why I don't mean to steal your thunder of starting the topic of cryptocurrency and, and Jordan, but that is why cryptocurrency is perfect transition. Such a following is because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it ties its roots to post financial crisis. Uh, you're seeing crypto assets and market caps cross three trillion for the first time. You saw. Cryptocurrencies created as jokes, Dogecoin and Shiba Inu. <laughs> the, <laughs> the combined market cap of these two Can coins. Can we say that on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's a type of, type of dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the combined market cap of the two coins that are created as a joke at one point earlier in the month was almost as high as $90 billion. So you're seeing a lot of excess occur in the crypto market and maybe to to that point billy absolutely there's a, a, a direct correlation <laughs> to it you're seeing excesses pop up all over the place i mean it's not just yeah cryptos jordan you've been the spat king here for a long yeah. time yeah when we last spoke the spac and ipo market really had dried up and you're seeing and people were despacking despacking mm-hmm. and you're seeing a ton of new issuance i mean just this week we had the largest ipo of the year with rivian um, I think the IPO market is just nonstop right now. It is. I mean, it I is. feel like for a decade plus, people talked about how what was the legislation that passed in two thousand three? Why am I blanking on it? Saying where it made it really hard for companies to come public. Sarbanes Oxley. And you saw this huge decline in the number of names that were publicly traded. Man, has that trend reversed? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're seeing so many new companies come to market. Yeah, it's been a record year in terms of money Are they coming to market raised. traditionally through IPOs, or are they coming to market in spacs uh, it's, and, and, yeah. and these? What do they call it when they just list? They don't have direct a, listings. Direct listing. Yeah, it's been a mix of, of all of it. I would say definitely a lot of SPAC issuance followed by IPOs and then uh, direct listings. I mean, there's been over three hundred. Rivian wasn't a, sp- a SPAC though, was it? No, that was a Nor traditional was traditional IPO. That was as How well. How was that received? Well, Rivian. Yeah, it was received well. They priced, I believe, around seventy seventy five dollars. I think it closed today at one twenty. That's part of that. I mean the whole trend in EV. I mean, gosh, just look at what Tesla has done. I mean, Rivian probably couldn't have gotten to market any faster, right? Or else they would have. Tesla's it, market cap is now larger than the entire energy sector. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. Who was? Were you the one talking about? Uh, 
That just what Toyota's. <laughs> Jordan, were you talking about what Toyota's market cap would be? Somebody the other day was talking to me about how if if Toyota and Ford got priced on like the per car multiple that Tesla is priced on, like however many car Tesla's market cap per the amount of cars that they produce. Right. They would be something like ninety trillion dollar companies or something crazy like that. I mean, it was just it was just absurd, and it's it's just wild. I mean, it just shows you how crazy Tesla has been. Yeah, and, and you know, I know nothing about spacs or despacking or anything else, but um, this is just sort of anecdotal evidence. I am. It has been brought to my attention that companies with valuations of a hundred, two hundred million dollars are now publicly traded through a special purpose acquisition company, yeah. right? Yeah, and not all come to market necessarily with insane valuations as well. And no, it could but, possibly be a good thing, a lot of new a, issues. That's a and, small company that couldn't do mm-hmm. that right? if there weren't de- just incredible demand for anything SPAC-related, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a... And I would be willing to bet you... That today's one hundred and fifty million dollar valuation was last year's fifty million dollar valuation. Absolutely. Were it yeah. not for the SPAC Avenue. What's interesting though is that the market does seem to pick up on that eventually. Like Allbird went public. I don't know. They're probably a three four billion dollar company or something like that. Yeah, right around three billion. Do they even make shoes anymore? I mean, that's like I mean, five years ago. They're starting to make everything. <laughs> But I'm on saw, my feet right now. Do you? You still <laughs> wear them? Okay. You saw you saw the market correct that pretty quickly. Right. And you also saw, uh, you've seen that in other things. I think Rent the Runway was one of the stock. I mean, they're a couple hundred million dollars. Well, you looked stock. at me about Rent the Runway. Because you mentioned Did small you see stock. me in that dress? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Saw you in it. No, I mean, you were talking about smaller companies, and I think that they're just, they have a market cap of maybe three, four hundred million dollars. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, it goes to show the just the amount of liquidity that's out there, and these companies are able to raise money uh, but just a couple of years ago john you would you would mention this a lot that there weren't even five thousand companies in the wilshire five thousand index i think with the new issuance we could be getting back, back to there. a point and uh, we also have 505 companies in the s p 500 we do. for reasons i will never explain <laughs> this has been fascinating i think it's time to move on to big things so for big things um i'm privy to all of your uh, ideas for what you'd like to talk about. And I think for transition purposes, Jordan, I'd like to start with you if you don't mind, because you, you take in a new direction a theme that we've been talking about throughout the conversation. Yeah, so I saw an interesting discussion um, earlier in the week regarding ESG and possibly uh, how inflationary some ESG initiatives can be. We've seen ESG flows go through the roof Explain recently. just briefly to old coots like me. Sure. So ESG. ESG is environmental, social, and governance, and it's investing with a purpose and for a particular cause. If you care about the environment, then you may not invest in ExxonMobil, for example. Um, if you care about social and governance aspects, you may invest in a company that pays their employees a high minimum wage. Um, But the discussion, and I thought it'd be interesting to share, is how inflationary some of these initiatives can be. And I'll just read, uh, I thought Bill Ackman said it well in a tweet earlier in the week, so I'll just read it uh, from what he said. He said, central bankers have not considered how inflationary ESG initiatives are. ESG is not transitory, but rather persistent and growing. 
Stakeholder capitalism will drive much needed increases in wages, but also higher energy costs, among other inflationary factors. And to his point on the environmental side, we are arguably getting rid of one of the cheapest forms of energy out there. Coal. Coal and fossil fuels. And it's not a statement based on how one may feel about that, but it is just a fact that the energy transition is going to require a lot of spending on infrastructure and we are transitioning away. I mean, look at energy costs in the UK or in Texas when pipelines froze and you couldn't access fossil fuel energy. Um, so I thought it was interesting and I wasn't sure if anyone else had anything to add on that. I would just say I think that's a, a fascinating look at what is becoming a huge trend in our industry. Um, ESG is a buzzword. Uh, and I think it too easily gets viewed as a as a good thing. It, it is good. It, it done properly. It it is a good thing, and I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But just the stamp of ESG doesn't make it a good thing. There are always unintended consequences. I remember having a conversation several years ago about how our government should impose fuel taxes like. European governments had done. And that's fine. If you want to move away from fossil fuels, disincentivize the use of it. But in this country, the people who bear the cost of that are those of us who can afford it the least. Because the best off among us can, can afford to live close to work, right? Mm -hmm. But those of us who can't have to drive the 10-year-old pickup truck 30 miles round trip and a surcharge for fossil fuel hurts those who can afford it the least. So that's an interesting take on, on another inflationary input, Jordan, and, and I appreciate that. Um, hope we didn't offend anybody with that. I don't think we meant to judge. It's just that to any good policy, well-intended policy, there are still unintended consequences, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, ben, I wonder if we could pivot to you because I know you wanted to talk a little bit about um, markets in a different way than we had discussed previously. Yeah, we started to go down that path. John, you mentioned uh, call volume, and you've just seen an explosion in just total option volume really since COVID. Uh, I think daily average volume on calls and puts today is nearly twice that of what it was pre-COVID. And the period from the financial crisis to COVID uh, was about twice that of what we were seeing prior to the financial crisis. So you're anywhere from four to eight times higher on volume and options today than you were 15 years ago. That's that's changed the underlying market structure tremendously during that time. Billy, you've talked a lot in the past about how things are speeding up. That's got to be a part of that. I wrote just the other day, and Billy, you and I had an interesting conversation, where, which is where some of this came from, about how the VIX was staying elevated despite the market doing so well. And do you want to talk at all about what was that? We were just, we, you know, the, the only thing I had to, to add to that was, you know, the VIX is ultimately pricing underlying option volatility. So if there's high demand and it's, it's in a wonky sense, it's, it's pricing even the further out the tail risk that you go. So in the tail risk, you know, most people think the, or for a while, we've been conditioned. VIX goes down, market goes up. VIX goes up, market goes down. 
but it's that with the increase in option volume, what you're seeing is so, so many options are being bought on the tail side, the call options, right? Mm -hmm. They're buying, where's Tesla trading today? 1200? They're probably buying one month out 2400 strike <laughs> yeah. options on Tesla expecting to double in 30 days. Or just the and, weekly expiration. Oh, well. yeah. And, and, yeah. And that also, so but, that drives the pricing of the VIX. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, but, it is a little bit different than... than but to be clear, a, a lot of that isn't the expectation of the price doubling as much as it is the hope. Because we have a new market participant, right? We have people who are playing the meme stocks uh, and, and they're doing it through options because options are a fraction of the cost. Correct. But of, hope and but that's coming stock. expectation but, and becomes a reality but it does in it, some of these cases. Either way, whether or not that hope is realized, that's what's changing market structure is the single name stock options. There's so much call option volume in single name stocks. I'm not even talking about the indices or the VIX that it's really messing with the implied volatility in a lot of these stocks and that's feeding into the market. You're going to get more market volatility because of the individual call option in names. And so it's just this giant this giant bleed through. And I mean, I think that that is why we're seeing what we're seeing. And to your point about a new participant, John, to your point about a new participant using uh, options, when have we ever seen excess leverage end well? Ask long term. Ask Archipelago. What was the name from Archipelago? Yeah, yeah. Archipelago. Yeah. Leverage has never ended well, and oh, all yeah, you're, you're seeing right. You're right. is excess leverage in the retail space, and it's so bad that the Fed recently commented on it that um, they're not seeing any leverage in, margin in hedge funds. It's not margins. It's options. Oh, it's just options. They're seeing young retail investors leverage basically to the gills, and the Fed's com the Fed said that they don't know how that will impact financial institutions. It's on the Fed's radar, this call option mania right now, and they think that it could impact financial institutions again, which is just, it's just wild. Um, that's a great point, and I think it segues very well into what I think you want to talk about, Billy. And if I may just sort of tee that up, um, you, in your last observations, spoke about... Uh, Elevators and escalators, or escalators <laughs> and elevators, uh, made me feel like I was in an old-time department yeah. store. But uh, you, why, why don't you pick up on your big thing? And Jordan, I think you had a comment. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to get to Billy's big thing and jump in. It is. It's it's really just a return of volatility, and it's we've we've the past twelve months, this past year, has very much mimicked what we saw in twenty seventeen. We went 227 days without a 5% drawdown. We just had that in September. There's only six other times in the history of the market that we went longer without a 5% drawdown. You've had just a couple, two, three, two to 3% drawdowns. I mean, it's been a, a stair step higher with very little drawdowns or really the mark. I wouldn't say even melt ups, maybe this past month, the past three weeks, you yeah, say so it's, it's becoming melt up. I mean, you, the NASDAQ went up two full trading weeks without a single down day. Um, yeah, S&P up for 16 of 18, 17 to 19 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. S&P had eight straight um, closes at an all-time high. That's um, wild. Most since 97. So, exactly. So, 
you know, maybe now you're starting to see. Good job, Jordan. <laughs> He's got the facts. He does. He really does. <laughs> just goes home and just studies facts. <laughs> but you know what? So maybe you're seeing this this melt up now, but it's just been this just steady market up and down. And what I I just think these next twelve months, fifteen months, if you want to count count, you know, go into calendar all of calendar year twenty twenty two. I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying you're just going to see more volatility. And when I say volatility, the first thing that comes to mind is people assume volatility as market goes down. When the volatility I'm talking about is not that the market will just go down. It is up and down. Which is what we saw with COVID, right? It's what we saw with COVID and it's what you you saw in the first quarter of, of 2018 coming out of 2017, which 2021, to me, kind of mimics that year. So you, saw, you saw a market in the first quarter, all in the first quarter, the market went up 7%, down 12%, up 10%, and down 9%. First quarter of 2018. First quarter of 2018. Yeah. That is what I think could be on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, you compared... And, and you didn't go anywhere, right? You went nowhere during that time. But you had these huge swings. You compared the lack of volatility to 2017 and 97. I don't know if you threw any other years out there. But you think about what happened right after that. 2018, the environment that you just described. And then 98, where you also had, I mean, you had the Russian ruble crisis and long-term blow-up. I mean, you had that volatility in both of those. They ended up with the market going higher. Neither one led to some great market crash, Yeah, it right? doesn't... It but does you had the volatility, the like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just... Could you see the market go up 20% and down 20% in the same year? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. I think it's an excellent point. And I would just like to throw this slant on volatility. Volatility tends to make most of us react emotionally. And very few good decisions are made when we are emotional. If you have a discipline, as I think that we do, volatility is an opportunity. When, when prices go down, risk is decreasing. When prices go up, risk is increasing. These are opportunities to be taken advantage of. Billy, thanks for that uh, discussion on volatility. I thought it dovetailed greatly with Ben. Jordan, I loved your um, ESGN initiative, ESG initiatives. Um, I, I have a slightly uh, different, more of a sort of a 10,000-foot take for my one big thing as, as we bring this extra-large extra version of Tandem Talk to a close. I would just like to say probably the single biggest reason that this is the longest Tandem Talk we've done, at least pre-edited, we have no idea how <laughs> what's going to end up being published, but at least pre-edited, this is the longest Tandem Talk we've ever done. And I think the reason for that is there are so many things going on in the world today that affect our clients. Mm -hmm. And so my one big thing is just to remind you out there in listener land to be a hedgehog. Tandem is a hedgehog. There's an old fable that is called the fox and the hedgehog. And basically it is this. Think in terms of the roadrunner and wild E. Coyote 
if you're old enough to have seen Saturday morning cartoons. So the fox or wild E. coyote is clever and has just a never ending bag of tricks. And the hedgehog, the hero of our story, or the roadrunner, just knows one big thing. And the hedgehog does it time and again. The fox lays in wait every morning for the hedgehog and has a new way to trap the hedgehog. And the fox appears and the hedgehog just rolls up into a prickly ball and the fox has to tuck its tail and walk away. The more confusing the world becomes, the more inputs you have to consider, the more important it is to remember what it is that you do well. Whatever it is that you do well, do that thing over and over again. Be a hedgehog. That's what we try to be every day when we come to work. We try to deliver to you a more consistent, repeatable, and less volatile experience that keeps you invested through all markets. Be a hedgehog. Tune out the fox. Billy, Ben, Jordan, I'd like to thank you for what I think was a great conversation. While we're the ones being recorded, I just don't want to end without uh, expressing our sincere appreciation for those behind the scene. We are joined in this room today by our co-producer, Julia Hoffman, and our director and creator of Tandem Talk, Elaine Natoli. Elaine and Julia do a phenomenal job of running our communications on a daily basis. I think most of our advisor partners out there interact with them pretty regularly and know how incredibly valuable they are. And this brainchild of Elaine's is just so much fun for us to get to do. We hope it's half as enjoyable for the audience as it is for us. And I must thank our producer and our audio and sound engineer, and perhaps as importantly, the voice of Tandem for all of our recorded material, Margaret White. So for the Tandem team, we say thanks for tuning in. If you've made it this long, we owe you something. (laughs) And we'll see you in three months. Thank you very much. Tandem Talk is produced by Margaret White, directed by Elaine Natoli, with music written and performed by Lauren Crepanzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.